Last Friday, 16 Palestinian protesters killed by Israeli soldiers after a mass protest by Gazan residents. Since Friday, the death toll has risen to 18 and there are widespread calls for a UN inquiry. The US military insists they had no choice but to defend their borders and the Israeli Defence Minister has rejected any need for an inquiry. To get a Palestinian perspective on the protests and their political impact, we welcome to Late Night Live Noura Erekat. She's a human rights attorney based in the US where she's acted as a legal advocate for US-Palestinian NGOs opposed to Israel's policies in Gaza and the West Bank. And she's also an assistant professor at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Noura joins LNL from her home via Skype and I welcome her to our, our little wireless program. Noura, the March of Return protests that began last Friday in Gaza couldn't have been a surprise to the Israelis because they'd planned, well, they'd been planned for months. Can you explain to the listener why it was called the March of Return? Absolutely, and thank you for having me on your program. Palestinians have, um, this is not the first in such a march. This is predicated and commemorates the forced removal of a native population in Palestine, um, first in the 1948 Arab-Israeli war under the pretext of military necessity. About 80% of the native population was forcibly removed. 400 of their villages were destroyed. Those that were removed were then prevented from return in contravention of a customary law for refugees to return. Israel justifies their forced exile um, on the basis that the return of Palestinians would undermine a Jewish demographic majority within Israel. Hence, thereafter, defining its own existence as maintaining that demographic majority, which is why when refugees say, we just want to go home, Israel then says, you want to destroy Israel because they have equated their return and their demography with their existential status, which really undermines their status as a democratic state for its citizens. That's one. Number two, within Israel... (laughs) This, the 160,000 Palestinians who were not forcibly removed remained internally displaced uh, from their original homes. Israel, in order to establish Jewish settler dominion, needed to erase the history of their existence and memory and therefore prevent, prevented even Palestinians who remained and became citizens from returning to their villages. And on March 30th, 1976, these Palestinian citizens of Israel organized a march to basically demand the right to return to their villages and to protest Israeli confiscation of their lands for building new settlements within Israel. And so this idea of settlements and Palestinian removal has existed within Israel. It becomes, it expands to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip only after 1967. In 1976, during that march, Israeli police shot to kill 
six of the unarmed Palestinian Israeli citizens, citizens of their own state, shot to kill them. And since then, Palestinians all over the world have marched on March 30th in order to commemorate their exile, to commemorate the, the loss of their land, and to demand, to assert that they exist, which is really what is so scary for Israel, that uh, Palestinians will not just disappear and assimilate into other Arab countries and just become, you know, nondescript. It's that insistence that they are a nation and a sovereign people, and I'm sure Australians will understand this well, with its own history of settler colonialism and its own reconciliation with native populations, what is at stake here? Noura, as usual with crises involving Palestinians and Israelis, there's an intense media battle to control the, uh, the narrative. As a Palestinian, what have you thought of Israeli explanations? Well, I think what's really unfortunate about the media cycle um, in general is that the discourse that it's set up is so predicated on a framework of violence and, and, and warfare that it is not equipped to either understand or explain these types of civil protests that Palestinians engage in every single day. The only moment that the media notices is when there's some kinetic violence. And in those instances, it immediately reverts to a framework of uh, Israeli self-defense and what will happen next and violence in the Middle East and is just ill-equipped to be able to understand what it means for a people to engage in a struggle for liberation in on most days, 365 days of the year, doing so through nonviolent demonstrations. This was the largest kind of civil protest. 30,000 Palestinians from the Gaza Strip who have been, uh, who have literally been in an open air prison for the past 11 years in a land siege and a naval blockade who marched, they didn't even get to the border, which Israel didn't declare, but were in a seam zone within the Gaza Strip and Israeli soldiers opened fire. And the media should be describing that as executions, and instead they're saying that there's clashes when there were no clashes. Noura, uh, I have to ask you this. To what extent are the political differences between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority also contributing to the frustrations of people in Gaza? The Palestinians in Gaza have a right to be frustrated with an entire international community that's turned its back on it. The World Health Organization says that the conditions in the Gaza Strip will leave it unlivable akin to Mars by 2020, which is only, you know, this is a horizon of less than five years. Uh, there's a hygiene problem in the last onslaught. Israel destroyed the only electricity generator in the Gaza Strip and, and has kept the population on a 2,000-a-day caloric diet just to keep them above starvation. And yet the world watches this and has normalized these conditions of collective punishment in ways that really stun um, any observer, and especially in 2018 um, and all the, the, the strides we've made since 1948 to enshrine a human rights framework as a matter of, 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 of uh, conventional law. In terms of Fatah and Hamas, they're also part of the Palestinians' problem. They are vying for political control of the Gaza Strip. And Hamas, which won electoral, uh, which came to 
governance in 2006 has never been given its mandate to govern, which is why it doesn't want to relinquish control. Instead, has been subject to sanctions and the siege instead. And Fatah, vying for that control, um, is now willing to take over the strip. Hamas wants to relinquish control of the strip and yet doesn't want to lay down its arms. And they have become at a standstill also. It's interesting, the New York Times editorial board came out yesterday with a, uh, a relatively strong criticism of the Israeli position, saying that Israeli courts catastrophe and, quote, Israel must temper its lethal response to uh, protests in the Gaza tinderbox or risk an escalation. Neither it nor the Palestinian leadership can contain that seems a reasonable comment. Yeah, but notice even there that the concern is for the escalation to come, not for the devastation and the structural violence already needed daily. There is, There should be a, a, an unequivocal call to end the land siege and the naval blockade now imposed on the Gaza Strip's 2 million Palestinian population for over 11 years that has led to untold devastations. People in the Gaza Strip have literally died because of overflowing sewage that they've drowned in. We're talking about Palestinian patients who can't get access to cancer uh, care we're talking about basic food needs that are inaccessible. And so even the New York Times in this moment warns Israel, temper your response and your treatment so that it doesn't go uh, beyond the pale, so that this doesn't overflow and escalate into violence. And yet what we're missing and what we're normalizing is that Palestinians are living in conditions of violence, certainly in the Gaza Strip acutely for 11 years, but since 1948, um, more generally, as a result of Israel's establishment and the international community's inability, inability to resolve the refugee crisis and to establish that there should be uh, Palestinian sovereignty within the mandate of Palestine, um, as indicated since 1917. Nura, there was a time when Ed, Edward Said was a regular on the program, and uh, I know you echo his scepticism about the Oslo Peace Accords. Uh, can the two-state policy survive? The two-state policy has been dead. The two-state policy has been long dead. And the only reason that politicians in the international community keeps it up on stilts as a walking dead is because of a lack of political will to resolve this in any other way and the inability to stem its death in the first place. The Oslo Accord signed in 1993 what Edward Said referred to as the Palestinian Treaty of Surrender, the Palestinian Versailles, established an autonomy framework that has basically frozen in time Israel's control in the West Bank that we have not been able to escape from. And the Palestinian Authority, in its own quest, for political control has acquiesced. It Israel consolidated four decades of land policy and settler colonial expansion in the Oslo Accords. And what they got in 93 was Palestinian acquiescence to that arrangement. So the and, and since then, Israel has increased its settler colonial encroachment, has torpedoed the two-state solution, has tripled its settler population from 200,000 to 600,000 since 1993, has entrenched 
its its presence, wants to annex the territories, has built a wall that goes through 80% of the West Bank, and now is deliberating full-out annexation of 62% of the West Bank. No, no, the, 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 sorry, but uh, we've got to move this along. The UN Secretary-General and the European Union have, of course, called for an independent investigation of the deaths in Gaza. But what you're looking for is a greater support of economic boycott of Israel. What I'm looking for is for policies that actually result in, in some shift in this devastating status quo. The EU, it's great that there is a call for investigation, but there have been investigations before that have languished and died on the shelf, like the investigation into Israel's uh, onslaughts of the Gaza Strip in 2008 and 9, in 2012, in 2014. There's been little accountability. That lack of accountability reflects the lack of political will that in part stems from the U.S.'s role within the United Nations in order to paralyze it, as well as the work of the peace process that has been placed as mutually exclusive with the legal accountability process. As a result of that incapacitation, what Palestinians have done is launched a civil society campaign calling for boycott, divestment, and sanctions of Israel. That's economic, cultural, and um, uh, econo economic boycott uh, in order to overcome that diplomatic intransigence. If there were other solutions we would all support them and do, and yet those solutions have been incapacitated. This solution, um, or this tactic, so to speak, is is one that seeks to circumvent this intransigence, and because of its efficacy, even that is now being criminalized within the United Kingdom and the United States as being anti-Semitic by equating um, anything that criticizes Israel with being bigotry against Jews, which is absolutely unfair and is precisely what why this issue has been such a taboo and so difficult to discuss merely for the inability to be able to have that discussion without accusations of being anti-Jewish. Meanwhile, Netanyahu and Trump have shown a very little serious interest in the two-state solution and... Uh, Meanwhile, of course, Trump is planning to move the embassy from Tel Aviv. How, does, how do Palestinians feel about that decision? So, I mean, I think that in and of itself indicates for you that the two-state solution has long been dead, whereas the two-state solution has stipulated that Jerusalem will be the capital of a, of a nascent Palestinian state. Here you have a U.S. president who has explicitly said it, there will be no Palestinian capital, but instead they will be um, they will be administering themselves under an autonomy framework. There will be no sovereignty. There will be no state. Palestinians, for their part, are less concerned about the lack of a state and sovereignty because that's been torpedoed by Israel now since at least 2001 um, and uh, since the the eruption of the second Palestinian Intifada. The real mourning amongst Palestinians about this announcement is the fact that Palestinians do not have the right to belong. That those Palestinians who have always lived in Jerusalem, who are already subject to forced removal um, in e erasure, 
are going to have that policy accelerated against them without the right to belong and to remain there. Noura, we've got to wind it up. I thank you for your time. Noura Arakat, human rights attorney, legal advocate for Palestinian American NGOs, and her day job is assistant professor at George Mason University.